0: This is Encounters, a dialogue that brings you multifaceted life stories you don't want to miss.
1: I came back in 1979. The reason why they wanted to bring me here was to learn Chinese. But then I started studying Kung Fu, Wushu. I got involved in Wushu by my own volition, it wasn't their idea. I grew up watching Bruce Lee and I was always quite diminutive quite small and you know would easily get bullied. want to be so strong I wanted to fight back <laughs> it was the first time I remember listening to pigeon whistles I remember that uh, especially in the winter because I was living in a hôtong and my room was next to the hôtong and in the winter I remember like because it's freezing cold of course without central heating and so under the bedclothes and listening to this eerie, beautiful sound of the pigeons with their whistles flying up above. So that was a real memory for me, was the relationship between pigeon whistles as an eerie, beautiful sound and the coldness of winter. So it was again it was somebody else's ideals. It was a very idealistic job. The problem it was wasn't my ideal, it was somebody else's ideal. But by then I'd already developed an interest in contemporary art. In my spare time I was going to, you know, exhibitions and galleries and and that was something that I really started becoming passionate about. So by then it was very simple. If I don't carry on with this job then i should do something i love what do i love well i really love contemporary art do i have training no have i been to art school no but it's what i should do because i like it
0: hello and welcome i'm your host manling my guest today is British artist Colin Chinnery, who is also widely known by his Chinese name, Qin Si Yuan. One of his most popular artworks is the Beijing Sound Museum in an old quadrangle courtyard, which recreates the history of the city using only sound. The site of the museum was the original home of Colin's Chinese grandparents, prominent writers Ling Shu Hua and Chen Yuan. Their daughter, Chen Xiaoying, married a British Sinologist, John Chinnery. Although Colin was raised in Edinburgh, he has spent half of his life in China. 40 years ago, Colin's parents sent him to Beijing, where he spent four years learning Chinese and martial arts. In his 20s, he revisited the city to do cultural studies and formed his own band. When he came back again in 2002, Colin decided to settle down and start his art journey. In today's program, we will find out how Colin turned from a Kung Fu boy into a conceptual artist. You have a name, Si Yuan, right? That's right. The Chinese character Si means thought or mm. thinking. Yeah. And Yuan means the origin or sources of something. Yeah. Any reason or who gave you this name?
1: Well, my mother gave me that name. And there's two reasons. One is that I was born in the UK and my mother's Chinese. So she wanted me to think about my origins, so thinking of the source. So there's a Chinese saying, Yin, shui, si yuan. When you drink the water, you must think of... The source from whence it came. And the other reason is because my grandfather's name was Chen Yuan, and it's the same Yuan as my name. He passed away just before I was born, so that's another reason.
0: You didn't have a chance to meet him, right? Yes, that's right. And uh, at the very beginning, you said you're half Chinese and half British, right? Mm -hmm. Which part
1: is bigger, the Chinese part in you? there's no there's no way to uh, calculate this I think we're all mixed in terms of our experiences and uh, I spent the same amount of time as in Britain as in China so as growing up my formative experiences were more in the UK so I would say I'm more European in terms of my cultural roots but my experiences in life are much more in China so in terms of my experience i'm perhaps more chinese but there's no way to put a percentage point on these
0: there's no clear line right to separate these two and put them together that's a whole of you exactly by hearing your brief introduction of yourself i think that at the age of Four, four years old, right? You were born in Edinburgh, right? I was
1: born in Edinburgh.
0: And at the age of four, you came back to China for the first time,
1: right? Well, I came to China for the first time when I was four, but that was a very quick tour. I didn't actually stay here. The first time I stayed here properly when I was eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, which year was that? I came back in 1979 because the first year that we could come back. The reason why they wanted to bring me here was to learn Chinese. They didn't teach me Chinese as a child, so I didn't grow up bilingually. I grew up just speaking English so they thought well it's the right time for colin to get a chinese education in terms of language a little bit taste of it right <laughs> yeah the original idea was just to stay here for let's say five or six months and then go back to edinburgh but then i started studying kung fu Ushu, And so I stayed, I ended up staying four years. Is it because your parents
0: didn't have a choice to send you to a language school? Because at that time we didn't have language school and your interest would be in wushu or martial arts then. There's no other choice. Why didn't they send you to normal schools?
1: I did. In the mornings I would go to primary school actually, a Chinese primary school, a normal school. And in the afternoon I'd go to the sports school. And the reason is that... They just wanted me to go to normal school, and I got involved in Wushu by my own volition. It wasn't their idea. I grew up watching Bruce Lee, and I was always quite diminutive, quite small, and, you know, would easily get bullied. i wanted to be strong. So I wanted to fight back. <laughs> so as many young boys would have and daydreams, they would uh, dream about um, getting their bullies back. And so me, I was, I was just like one of those other boys. And I knew... The famous Pingju actress Xin Xia, because my father was a Pingju researcher I uh-huh. knew her. She knew the head of the school of Shi Sports School, which is the most famous sports school in Beijing and famous actually all over China. He said, okay, I'll make an introduction and uh, they, mm. they will make an assessment of their own. I can't, you know, I can't make the decision for them. The coaches will assess Colin. And so I started, I, I tried out. And when, th- at the beginning, I heard one of the teachers say in the background, Oh, Oh which means uh, foreigners can't really take um, pain. Not hardworking they, enough. They, yeah, they can't really struggle. I really took that personally. And instead of giving up, which I should have done, because, it, <laughs> you know, I wasn't really aiming to go, you know, to train to become a professional athlete. Mm-hmm. I persisted because they said that because I heard them say that and I said well I can't lose face so I must you know persevere what sound was left which is typical of that period of time well the only sound that I really remember was the sound of the sports goal and that was us training every day we'd have to do our basics which are like our kicking exercises and so on and Mm -hmm. some of those kicking exercises, you have to actually slap their foot with your hand. Like,
0: Slap your foot with your hand? Yeah. Yes.
1: So there's various training, there's various kicks, there's some like and all these. And so when we do that, we're doing them in unison. So there's, I don't know, in our class, we had maybe 10, 15 kids. So in 10, 15 kids, we would be Kicking, slapping our feet in unison It's like a when you clap in unison <sighs> Like that, if you have 10 people, 15 people But it's a different sound from that Because it's not two hands together It's a hand and the sole uh-huh. of your trainer Of your um, shoes and so it was a very special sound. It's in unison and it sounds very regimented. It sounds very military. Military, yes. Yeah. And so that was because you also your feet land at the same time mm. and you kick at the same time and you hit your, your foot at the same time. And it's like, hum, mm. mm. It sounds like like uh, military.
0: Later, have you ever tried to revive this sound? To go into a sports sort of a campus and try to record and
1: bring it alive again. I will at some point. The reason why I haven't is because that sound is not really that society would recognize. It's only sounds that like wushu okay, yeah. practitioners recognize. It's
0: your own personal sort of sound memory. Exactly. How did wushu change you?
1: I guess what it did was it really trained my body and I can imitate movements much better than I would have been able to without that training So my body is more articulate. But, you know, (laughs) I'm very stiff now. I can't possibly do those movements that I could do then. But I can still feel the movements that I can do then. It's just my leg can't lift very high anymore.
0: Ah, interesting. You said you liked the Bruce Lee films, right? You grew up with it. And then after this experience, personal experience, do you understand Bruce Lee's life and uh, art, film, Better.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I admired him because I came out from a very different system that he did. had obviously a very, very different life. Um, I also admired Jackie Chan because I watched Jackie Chan once I came to China and I was doing a film. We all had to do our own choreography and we wanted to put humor into our film. This was a film called The Kids of Shaolin or Shaolin Temple 2 as it's sometimes known. This was like 1982. We were making the film. We had to watch his films in order to learn about humour and choreography and fighting scenes and things like that. So I developed a love for uh, Jackie Chan films because we had to watch them over and over and over again. I guess you're
0: more interested in the film's stories, you know, human stories, than the uh, techniques of Wushu. But do you realise that because you know, learned or studied martial arts, you got admiration from others, including me now talking to you.
1: Well, yeah, that's another thing. If you've been in a film, then of course you're well known. I went, I remember going to Hong Kong and being recognised on the street. That was something new for me. And when I went back to the UK in Edinburgh, I was, you know, on the front page of the Edinburgh's Daily Paper. Were you happy? No, not really. And then I was on Britain's possibly most popular TV program called Blue Peter. In those days, it was very, very popular. And I was on that program three times. I had an open invitation to be on that program. But I, I really didn't like fame. I didn't like You don't it. like it? No, it was very intrusive. And it was not something likable at all. People would, would come up to you in the street and ask you questions. And I just felt, uh, and at school, some people would admiringly, you know, but a lot of people, of course, you know, would be either ambivalent or let's say, antagonistic. Mm-hmm. Oh, you think you're famous, don't you? Oh, you're famous. And people would make fun or test me. It would be very difficult for a child. I was just 12, 13 years old, and I didn't know what to do with it. I just wanted to be left alone, to be honest. On the other side, I had to deal with the fact that I was a British boy who had been to China in a very formative period of his life. I spent four years only with Chinese people at a very in a time when china when beijing was certainly not um metropolis it wasn't urbanized it wasn't sophisticated it was still very traditional and it was still very strange so i came back as a chinese kid really because by then i had completely changed all my whole mindset was chinese even though my roots were very european very british so i was adjusting back to trying to fit in to being in a british environment and of course that was something that I didn't even understand what's going on. So I was very lost, both as a person and culturally, but also trying to deal with this fame thing. When did that confused sort of
0: situation started to clarify? You know, you finally know, OK, this is what I want. I'm no longer confused. When was that point of time?
1: It was after I left middle schools. after I left high school. Um... I think all the way through middle school, I was pretty much lost. I just had more lostness than other teenagers. <laughs> I think most teenagers are lost by default, yes, right? Yes, so yes. I was just a little bit more lost than them. <laughs> Prolonged. <laughs> <laughs> I had a couple more layers of lostness than them. So after I thought I would study computer science, because that was the very end thing to do in the 1980s, yeah. you studied computer science, you you know, at the vanguard, you're starting a new industry. So I got managed to get into a very top university. I I started very, very far. I was one of the three most stupid kids in the first year of (laughs) high school. Out of 250 kids, there was only three kids that needed special care. And I was one of those three kids. So by then, I caught up academically. And by the end, I managed to get into a very top international university. And so I studied computer science. And then after one term, I I dropped out. So computer science, that choice is
0: you're following the trend because it's the most desirable then, right? And by that time, you haven't developed your own independent thinking, you know, who I am, what I want, no.
1: No, not yet. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And if you don't know, nobody can tell you oh, you would be interested in this, or you should like that. You have to figure these out on your own. Yourself, so, right? Yeah. And I was lucky enough to, you know, be at a time when you had choices. I mean, you know, there's many friends of ours at a certain age, you know, you go into university and that's it basically for the rest of your life. You choose your profession and, and then you're allocated a, a work unit. And then, you know, you do that for the rest of your life. So I was very lucky. You did so well in science. And then I st- you had no interest. I struggled in science. I did get good results. I good, got good test results, but I had to struggle for it a lot. Because I thought that that was the thing that I should be doing. And then I realized that it wasn't. <laughs> you know, you have ideals that are somebody else's. They're somebody else's ideals. They're not your ideals.
0: When did you have the realization that something, this is what I want?
1: Oh, that was much later. I just knew that I was bad at math. I loved solving problems by programming. I loved that. So I got 80% for that. But I was terrible at math. And I got 20% for that. And so I went to my tutor and I said, is there going to be more or less maths in future from now on? And he said, without a doubt, a lot more. And so I just quit there and then. I just dropped out there and then. Okay, that's it. Show me where, you know, the admissions is and I'll go down there and I'll just, you know, drop out.
0: And how did it come up that you chose Chinese culture and
1: civilization as a major? It was after that when my grandmother, Ling Shuhua, and she used to be a very important writer in the 1920s and 30s when she was gravely ill we brought her back to beijing we stayed with her for six months and during that period a lot of her background and history came up and i found it absolutely fascinating and that's when i realized i needed to know more about my own roots on my chinese side so i decided to study chinese even though that's what i wanted to avoid previously because my father was a sinologist and My whole life, I had been surrounded by other Chinese scholars. It wasn't something I wanted to do. I (laughs) wanted to avoid that. And then I realized that even though I could speak Chinese fluently, I couldn't read or write Chinese. I was basically illiterate. You know, you can learn to read and write English or European language in your spare time, but Chinese, I don't think so. I mean, it would be a lot, lot harder. So I didn't know what to do. And so I thought, ah, that's something I should do. For the academic sake of it, not because I wanted a degree and use that degree to get some job, but simply because I needed that academic environment and the rigorous training to do it properly. You pick up the
0: Chinese culture and civilization as a major. Why you choose a School of London?
1: I can't remember exactly why. Obviously, I didn't want to go to Edinburgh University. Was my father <laughs> was. I kind of grew to, up going to that. You're so the, rebellious. I even. Not rebellious. I think you want to. <laughs> Avoid overshadowed by your own parents? I think most kids want to figure things out by themselves. Yes. I know the Edinburgh you know, Chinese department by its smell. I grew up going. To, you know, the idea of going back to there, like it would be suffocating. Yes, it would be. I think it would be debilitating. <laughs> okay. um, so I didn't want to go there. Mm. And but also, I wanted to go to London and want to stay in, you know, one of those reasons was that in the second year, you be sent to Beijing, you know, to study the language. Exchange a student. No, exchange. As a second year of most degrees, most language degrees in the UK, you are sent to the country where you have that environment. That's so, part of the degree, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's part of the degree. So mm-hmm. in Edinburgh, you're sent to Xi'an. So as you're st- sent to Beijing in at the Beijing Normal University. So That's
0: my alma mater. There you go. <laughs> so
1: I that was... Definitely one of the reasons was because, one, I'd be in London. Two, I'd be sent to Beijing, not Xi'an. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with Xi'an, but, I've, you know, if I'm going to be sent anywhere, I wanted to kind of re- you know, go back to Reconnect. Beijing is basically my home. Yes. So I like that idea. Mm-hmm. I came straight to Beijing. And also the teacher said, you don't have to go to classes if you want to experience China. So I decided to, you know, what I could explore in Beijing. And I in those days, I... Through a friend of mine, I discovered a place called the Yuanmingyuan Yuan Artist's Village. It Painters' a, Village. Really. Yeah, you would call it the Artist Village artist's in English. Village. It was a village and artists from all around China congregated there and lived there. And uh, as a place for them to, you know, be artists with each other, to have a small community. And that was the first time I'd ever come into contact with artists. It was the first time in my life, regardless of whether in the UK or in China, where actually I felt relaxed. That's why I didn't take classes and I want to, you know, experience more of that. And then I got involved with some artists who wanted to start a band and I started the band with them. What sort of music you played? Rock? I would say, yeah, it's definitely rock, but it would say, let's say, what we would call broadly speaking, post-punk. It's Uh not punk music, it's post-punk, which is broadly encompasses things like New Wave and other Music influences that are happening in the 1990s, in the late 80s, early 90s.
0: And you gave a name to your band.
1: Yeah, the name is Xiaowei, which means pressure point or acupuncture point. That's it, a
0: Chinese medicine sort of a concept. Yeah,
1: it doesn't sound very good in English, but Xiaowei, <laughs> <laughs> wei I prefer in English just to call it Xiaowei. And the idea was that each pressure point is a place where several nerves come together. And mm-hmm. so the idea was that you know, the various members of the band would converge on one point oh. and, and that's the point where the music happens. Did <clears> the band survive? No, like most bands, we had a falling out. We lasted for about three years. And the reason why we couldn't stick together was because actually, ironically, we didn't have a band leader. If you have a band leader, then you have some... Personality: someone who has the charisma and the strength to actually hold everyone together. Because musicians are like artists. They have egos. They want their own voices. So if you don't control that, they're like cats, basically. It's oh, like cats. herding when cats. What a comparison. They're herding cats. <laughs> okay. So you need that very strong personality in order to keep cats together.
0: By listening to your mm. description, I can conclude that that four years in China, you enjoyed yourself so much. That's the most fun period of time
1: in your life, in your youth, right? Can yeah. I conclude that way? Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it definitely was. When it was going well, it was incredibly fun. Of course, you know, all the band politics was less fun, but it added to, you know, let's say the experience of life. But I want to
0: come in to let you compare this four years with
1: that four years. What changes have you noticed? I think that the musical part of my life has definitely helped me grow as a human being because I became involved in culture and creative work. That in the sh- Chinese society? In, well, as just, just, life, just a as, standard, as a living standard, everything. I thought the early 90s was much tougher than the early 80s because in any change that of any society has, you have growing pains. And those growing pains happen in the middle. They don't happen at the beginning. And that was possibly the worst growing pains, especially for Beijing, I think, uh, was the early 90s. People didn't really know who they were anymore. In the 1980s, they knew that they were idealistic. They still had that idealistic, we want to make China better, we want to make China a better place, and we're all a part of that endeavour. And so even though people didn't have any money, people nobody had money in those days, right? But people felt they were a part of something. But by the 1990s, that was no longer the case. People were thinking about money, But the opportunities to make money had not come about yet. So they no longer had the idealism of the 1980s and they didn't have the money of, you know, later on in the reform process. So they were neither here nor there. So a lot of people were very frustrated in everyday life and I felt that because they took it out on Westerners more in those days i think in the 1980s people were very curious about westerners they would stare at them and go Ooh. <laughs> just like strange looking person and you know you got a lot of this curiosity and staring you know remember i think all westerners from the 1980s will remember that 1990s still got that but the stare was no longer that of curiosity it was no longer innocent it was a stare of animosity mm. people just look at you and kind of hate you, not because of who you are, but because you have it all and we have nothing. That is a feeling, you know. And so I did not enjoy my time in society. I enjoyed my time with my band, with my friends, performing, rehearsing, all that. I enjoyed that, but I really didn't like being out on the streets because I got this negative vibe wherever I went. It's a uh, love and hate Sort of a complex almost you know, It was
0: difficult Yeah difficult And the growing pain Is so accurate mm. For you to describe That period of time Yeah Okay You asked for one year Sort of a one gap year That's right But how come you stayed More than one year And how could you still have the um, Well I
1: dropped out I dropped out.
0: You dropped out?
1: Yeah. I got a very angry letter from the head of the Chinese department saying what a disappointment I was and so on. And uh, I said, you know, well, I'm not coming back anyway, so it doesn't really matter. So because by then I decided to take a year out and then I got the band together and then, okay, this is a new life for me. It's a real life. It's something I really wanted to do and it was something that was serious. It wasn't just, you know just oh i'm just having fun so i decided to do that long term okay
0: if i want you to describe your typical sound memory your own personal one i'm not talking about your other sounds the yeah. background sounds right what was the typical sounds you have in your memory for these 4 years
1: it was the first time i remember listening to pigeon whistles i remember that uh, especially in the winter because i was living in a hutong And my room was next to the Hotung and in the winter, I remember, like, because it's freezing cold, of course, without central heating. And so we're in the, you know, under the bedclothes and listening to this eerie, beautiful sound of the pigeons with their whistles flying up above. So that was a real memory for me was the relationship between pigeon whistles as an eerie, beautiful sound and the coldness of winter.
0: And uh, what made you decide to go back to the UK?
1: Well, once the band split up, I realized that I, you know, I love music. I could have invited anyone really to bring a band together. But by then I was very well known in, in Beijing as a musician. But the problem was that there weren't that many people available. And so I couldn't think of the right people to bring together to form a new band without breaking up another band. That's not a cool thing to do. So I thought, well, there's no point. I don't want to just hang about, you know, not knowing what to do. So I decided very quickly to finish my degree in Chinese at SOAS.
0: Is that a continuity of your previous degree? Because you already dropped out. Yeah, you, the same we, degree. Same degree you the same degree. applied to continue?
1: Well, I had to apply from scratch. So I had to pass the test to go straight into third year. Oh. And that's a very different proposition because by then, you know, I would need to really know how to read and write Chinese fairly properly. So I had to study very hard for that. I went back to SOAS, and by then it was 1996. I went straight into third year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the first time I stepped into SOAS. First time I really took classes was in third year. <laughs> so that was in London, and bad I student. Yeah, I'm a bad student, definitely. <laughs> what do you call it? I'm a student of life, put it that way. Well, uh, yes, well said. <laughs> I used was, to be a teacher. <laughs> right. Yeah, so I studied very hard when I was there. Uh, mm-hmm. And I studied for two years. And as I was studying, I started to, you know, uh, to enjoy it. And so I was thinking, you know, maybe I, uh, I want to be an academic after all. I was, I, I was lost once again. I, lost again. Because I was no longer doing music. I was studying Chinese. I was in an academic environment. And so I didn't really know what to do. I thought, well, maybe academia. When I graduated, there was a job opening at the British Library in the Chinese department. It was for a project called the International Dunhuang Project. It was a project about the digitization of Dunhuang manuscripts that were housed at the British Library. So I thought, well, I'll apply for it. If I get it, I get it. If I don't, I will go and PhD degree. No, I won't. (laughs) I thought if I don't get the job, I would wander the world a little bit. So I just go and and, you know, back another gap year. It wasn't. Yeah, it was I graduated. So it's no longer a gap. Then I got the job. And then that job hooked you. I wouldn't say hooked me. But if you're going to do something, you might as well put all your energy into it. Otherwise, just don't do it. But you
0: said you started to enjoy it, right?
1: I was honored to have the job. And do you have a chance to visit Moga Grotto? Yeah, of course. I went there twice. And then as I started to do the job, then I, of course, I took it seriously and I started doing research and writing some papers and attending conferences and then later on giving lectures. And then I was asked to be responsible to head up the project center at the National Library of China here in Beijing. So I very quickly went from a very simple task to becoming let's say a project leader and then in my team I had people who are all post doctorate people at the National Library of China real researchers people who know a lot more than me then I became known in the field as someone who as a sinologist as a researcher of Donghuang mm. so it was very interesting academically for me the problem was that I wasn't passionate about it. See, there's (laughs) problems. So it was, again, it was somebody else's ideals. It was a very idealistic job, and it was a very ideal job. The problem, it wasn't my ideal. It was somebody else's ideal. So I thought, well, this is a, a great job to have, but i don't enjoy it no you? passion yeah no passion so once the head of the chinese department Frances wood she liked my work and when she was offered to write a book on central asia she actually turned down the book and and recommended me instead mm-hmm. and this is when i felt a bit ashamed because well Uh-oh. i didn't feel i was really I'm up not to good the task. enough for that exactly <laughs> um so i felt maybe i'm a bit of a charlatan maybe i'm giving people the wrong impression And so at that point, I decided either I take this book and I become a scholar, Mm. you know, and I do a PhD and do all the rest of it, Mm -hmm. or, you know, I quit my job. I just stop and do something else. So at that point, Mm. I realized it was like, and that was a question. That was really the question. It's like, but do I love it? Do I want to do this for the rest of my life? And the clear answer was no. But by then, I'd already developed an interest in contemporary art. In my spare time, I was going to, you know, exhibitions and galleries. And and that was something that I really started becoming passionate about to the point where I couldn't really think about anything else. So it was really taking over my brain. So by then, it was very simple. If I don't carry on with this job, then I should do something I love. What do I love? Well, I really love contemporary art. Do I have training? No. Have I been to art school? No. But it's what I should do because I like it. So you quit. And you decided to come back to China? To become a narcissist, yes.
0: Colin says love and work are the most important goals in his life. And he was lucky to find both of them here in Beijing. An active artist in his own right, in 2013, Colin founded the Beijing Sonic Reenactment Project, seeking to preserve the city's history by recording vanishing sounds. In the next episode, he says more about how he restored the lost audio of old Beijing. And that's the end of our show. I'm Manling. Thank you for joining us. Please rate us, because the more stars we get, the easier it is for other people to find the show. Bye for now.